BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. The next time you do that, you're going to get carded some. Well, that's not the approach. What you need to say is, I need an improvement from you. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. Uh, I'm Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by my co-host, as usual, Ben. And today we're joined by a very special guest, um, a bit different to the usual ones, but an expert in refereeing. We're joined by former Premier League referee, Keith Hackett. How are you, Keith? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Really looking forward to having a debate and informing your listeners a little bit more about refereeing. Perfect. But Keith, I'm just going to get straight into it. Um, you know, mm. we'll, we'll explore your journey and you know your roles that you're currently doing and whatnot. But you know, I want to know where did the journey start for you? Way back, way back in 1960, I'd been playing local uh, junior football, not very good, uh, and then I was invited to attend a, a refereeing course, which I did. I passed with no intentions of becoming a referee, and uh, anyhow, a few weeks later, I was invited to referee a match. I borrowed the kit. 
uh, I walked onto what was a school field at intake on the outskirts of Sheffield and refereed my first match. Interestingly, the coach of the team, one of the teams came up and said to me, I think you've done really well there. How many games you had? And I said, well, this was my first one. And he goes, keep it up. And I suppose that was just the initial spurt to say, right, I'm going to stay with it. And uh, for 12 years, and I think people fail to understand that a referee who reaches the top has probably had between 8 and 12 years of refereeing at grassroots level. Mm. So I would be, uh, I had no car then. So there are occasions when I'd be catching public transport, setting off probably for an 11 o'clock Sunday morning game, probably about 8 o'clock to make certain I was there because I have this habit of always wanting to get to the ground an hour before kickoff at least. Um, and then enjoying the games. And the games came thick and fast. I used to have referee about 100 games a year. So wow. midweek I'd be available, Saturdays, Sundays a couple of games. Um, I'd do some five-a-side refereeing as well between, you know, all the car deal dealers in Sheffield played five-a-side football in midweek. And, um, and so I was invited to referee it. And so that's what I did for a number of years. Really enjoyable. Brilliant. You know, obviously you need to talk there about how you got into it, but how did that so Talk us through, you know, moving from maybe essentially a grassroots stage to eventually moving into a professional referee. And what does that process look like? Well, I, I think at grassroots level, you learn your craft. I mean, you don't know what to expect with the teams. You know, the pitchers in Sheffield are not flat. They're sometimes dreadfully muddy and, and the weather and all those sort of things that you have to put up with. Um, and, of course, on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, the guys were turning out at, then in the 60s, some with slightly thick heads and, uh, and smelling a beer uh, <laughs> and, pro and probably didn't know half of what they were doing. But let me tell you, the enjoyment that I got from that continued because throughout my career, um, and I think modern referees can learn from it, throughout my career, I would perhaps referee... You know, an international game on a Wednesday night when I reached FIFA and then on Sunday morning, two pub teams. So it was great. They thought it was great that all of a sudden they got a referee that was uh, yeah. operating at a professional level, refereeing the games at local league. But you still had to referee them, Definitely. you know. And there were times when we didn't have a dressing room. We had to change in the car or change under a, an edge. But when I look back, that was all part of a massive learning curve. Mm. And and dealing with players, um, you know, and getting to know them a bit more and what they were about. And just just on that, you know, you touched there, you know, about uh, grassroots being where you really learn your craft in that respect. Mm. What, you know, can you just talk to you know how important that really is? You know, and I'm, and I'm sure this is this doesn't just apply to referees, and you know, this, this also applies for coaches. You know, especially those who aren't uh, going. In, moving in from a professional background initially, then moving into becoming, uh, I guess, coaches or referees or whatnot. But just talk to, could you mind just talking to that a bit in terms of how, how important that was a grounding for you to work in the grassroots environment first? Yeah, I think that one of, the, one of the first things to learn was that I had to control a match. And for them, every Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon was a cup final. So they, they trained all week, you know, and they wanted to play the game and they played it at fast and furious. And I had no linesmen, assistant referees, as they now call. So you had to be reasonably fit. The, the outcome was that 
what you did was it, you learned how to manage players. You learned, if you like, that the last thing you wanted to do was was actually caution them or dismiss them. Because remember, mm. in 1960, there were no red and yellow cards. And for me, the craft was how could I calm down a player that was unhappy with a decision mm. or how could I how could I stop conflict between one player and another? And you learn to be proactive. You learn to be able to judge generally fairly fairly uh, confidently what a player might or might not do. But you also judge that the frustration sometimes of a player who perhaps thought he was George Best or Maradona and when he dribbled the ball and fell over, you knew that that was a line for frustration. And uh, you just have to not smile too, too generously at the player, but just say, come on, try again. And I, I think it was in that area where you learned your craft in terms of how to communicate and how to deal with players. Mm. And also recognise that players were not an enemy. They, they wanted to enjoy the game as much as I did. And therefore, I went out with the intentions of, keeping 22 players on the pitch and enjoying the game. And I wanted them to enjoy the game. And occasionally the banter was, you know, it might be, ref, you've missed one there. And I would say, well, hold on just a minute. You had a shot on goal and it was about 10 yards wide. So <laughs> we're 1-1. One, one. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes a player might come out with an expletive. The first line wasn't to go and say, right, you're off. It, it would be to turn your head and look in the direction of a player and say, look, I don't think he likes what you've said to him. And then he'd run it alongside and said, ref, I meant it for you. And I'd go, listen, just calm down a bit and don't be so public with your comments. Talk to me quietly and I'll listen. Mm. And if you've, if you've got an grievance, I'll listen, but don't, don't go public on it because then I've got to act. And so yeah. that build up. And of course, then dealing with, dealing with the pitches. I, I mean, I played games on some of the pitches that were unbelievably bad mm -hmm. uh, you know I can remember one particular Sunday morning on a very frosty winter morning turning up turning up early and uh, the outcome was that uh, I started rolling the pitch because around the goal areas they were rutted and I thought with this heavy cricket roller that was alongside the football pitch I'd drag it along and and get the pitch fit because I wanted to play Hmm. And and the teams were grateful of that. And so there were things you did that were completely daft, but at the same time, it just underpinned my love of the game that I've maintained for for a long time now. Um, just on that, like, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Then, because I feel like uh, nowadays the 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 new sort of generation of referees uh, coming forward, they they may be in a rush. Uh, to get to that sort of like high level there, and not necessarily do that sort of apprenticeship there, like where, like, uh, I, as I can imagine, even 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 so in the Premier League, there must have been some really tough games that um, you you've had to referee. But then if you didn't have the underpinning of your like uh, grassroots experience, where like you had like you know limited, uh, you know limited uh, access to like other assistant referees and stuff like that, like. How important do you feel it is to like just build that sort of um, experience in the grassroots before like moving on uh, to the I, program? 
I think it's massive. You know, it's just like a player, isn't it? I mean, mm. we, we we look in this area and Jamie Vardy played local football. I mean, he played grassroots football for a long time before he was spotted by a club and went on through Halifax and, and then eventually to Leicester and, and England. So he gained a lot of information as he was playing football and, of mm. course, ambition. So I think that in refereeing terms, there's, there's nothing like having the experience. And, and generally, I think referees do uh, have a, a fairly lengthy apprenticeship, several years. But you're right, there are a lot of referees who give up because after two years, they expect to be on the Football League or the Premier League and that ain't going to happen. Mm. And um, also, uh, in, re- in regards to that, like what, what are your thoughts in terms of like, uh, the fact that, like, there's, so, that there's certain stakeholders in the game, be it coaches or players, etc., that would... Um, that would think sometimes uh, that like a referee is kind of wanting to take over a game, like a, kind of be like the the centre of it was on um, controversial decisions being made, or 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 be like um, you know acting a bit abrasive uh, towards towards players. Like, yeah. uh, do you, do you always feel uh, do you always feel is like you know the referee's fault, or do you think it's like a general general sort of freeze that? Um, you know, lead to them being viewed like that? I generally think there are referees like that, and too many, uh, that are abrasive, mm. that think that the game is about them and not about the players and the game itself. And therefore, I think they are abrasive. And in, in, in a sense, their careers sometimes often don't advance. I think that we're part of the game and we, and we can't play football generally. We, we're referees and therefore... It's about stimulating enjoyment. It, you know, the passion is there. Everybody's got passion about the game. But sometimes you do get the one, the one who, who, who's a bad school teacher. You know, it, I, I've got, it's almost, he's not carrying a clipboard. He's got a book in his pocket and he's got to fill it. And I don't think that is mm. the name of the game. And I think, I think in fairness, whilst I understand why red and yellow cards are required, um, I'm I'm of the opinion that when they were introduced in 1970, they were a good idea. But now I think, are they needed at grassroots level? Should we not get the referee talking a bit more to the players and, and winning over and learning their own craft in terms of how to deal with conflict? And And I think all too often, referees don't see that as a major part of their role, the management of players and how to, how to be proactive. Um and I think sometimes the mix of people who are taking up refereeing, are they taking up for the right reasons? Is it just that they want to become a Premier League referee earning 100k a year? Or is it actually because they want to enjoy the game and participate like everybody else on a Saturday or Sunday morning? Just just on that, Keith, you know, you talk there about uh, going into, you know, essentially conflict management and, you know, really communication skills and how to manage people in that respect. How much of an emphasis is there on that in terms of the, I guess, the pathway of in the referee coaching the referee courses sorry not enough in truth i don't think there is enough i mean i learned more about that when my career was over when i became boss of the pgmol the professional referees you know um and i don't want to get to that that level at the moment in terms of discussion but certainly when i became boss of the referees i brought in sports science i brought in sports psychologists and at that time we were 
we were actually talking about body language. We were talking about presence, avoiding arrogance. All those things were coming out at the same time as we were using sports science and nutritionists to become fitter and more mobile. But, you know, conflict sometimes doesn't come out in the, in the right way. And, and, you know, I mean, I was chatting to a mate of mine who I admire strongly, uh, Uriah Rennie, and mm. probably our, the best black referee that we've ever had. And I was his boss. And, and he's, a, he's a fantastic guy. And he's now on the referees committee at the FA. And I, he and I share one ambition, and that is to see more black referees at the highest level. And the only way we're going to achieve that is to actually get them refereeing at the uh, grassroots level and then for the, mm. for the pathway to the top to be fair and equitable. And I'm not so sure, mm. and I'll say this, not because I'm talking to you two guys, I'm going to say this because I believe it. I believe that there's a lack of fairness in the pathway of, of uh, black referees and ethnic minority referees getting to the top. And, and that's got to be addressed by the FA. Now, OK, that aside, I think the, the management of uh, players is to try to understand attitudes. And, you know, they may have had a bad night at the office the night before when they come on to play grassroots football. They might get frustrated because the team's not gelling well and they're losing. All those aspects, when you're refereeing, have to be taken into account. And therefore, I'd run alongside a player and say, look, OK, just like me, it's not going so well, mate. Just keep at it, because I've got to keep at it, because I'm getting paid for 90 minutes here. Uh, mm. And I know you're doing it for free and the love of it. I'm actually doing it the same. But we've got to see it out. When the thing gets rough and tough, that's when we become people and we learn a bit more, because that's the learning curve. When things mm. go wrong in refereeing, you know, and we make an error, if we don't accept after the match that we've made an error, then we're never going to advance in refereeing. And therefore, sometimes I come across referees who are not prepared to accept that they make mistakes. They're almost like godlike and say, you know, back to this, uh, if you like, attitude that I don't like in refereeing. I much prefer the referees that got to the top, like Webb, like uh, Uriah Rennie, like Mark Alsey, uh, that, that talk their way through problems in the game because they'll come and it's how you deal with them that counts mm. and how you can prevent mm. those that escalation of a problem and just on that you know you talked there about in the referees are essentially becoming more transparent and open about what's happening in the games and, and i guess some of the decisions they've made do you not then that think that that will put them in a situation where either a they'll start contradicting one another at times or B, you know, in some cases, the people look at that and say, well, actually, well, this referee said this, but why has this referee made a similar decision? And, I, you know, it really puts further, I guess, a microscopic look at the consistency of what's happening, especially at the top end of the game. Well, I, I mean, when I was the boss of the PGMOL, I opened up the communication links. I, I, I had a situation where, it, you know, it was referees, former referees assessing current referees, Mm. And and everybody said, that's like the police, checking the police. Uh, and I've gone, right, I'm going to change it. So I went to the Premier League and said, like, what I really need is I need 20 people, former players, former managers, who are out of work probably or, or they've ended the career, and I want them 
to go to the games and assess and judge the referee's performance. And that's what happened, and it still happens today. But I think that there is a lack of communication that's coming out of the PGMOL, which sadly I used to try and, uh, as the boss at that time, uh, promote, because I think that the more people understand what refereeing's about, and, and, you know, my participation today is to understand, look, we're human, uh, and we do make mistakes, but I think sometimes we've got to go out and ad- admit that we've made a mistake and why we've made a mistake. Look, let's take that game where Sheffield United scored a goal and the technology let them down. Now, I'm the guy that brought in the communication kits, polar heart monitors, buzzer flags, goal line technology, and was promoting VAR when I left the role. So I'm for technology, but the back line is that there's always the human element. So if we, if we can publicly, like, okay, Orkai came out and said, actually, the system failed the first time in 9,000 games. But then I'm asking as a referee, the linesman, the assistant referees bang behind the flag in line. Mm, mm. Why didn't he flag? And why didn't the VAR mm. come in? Because I'm watching TV, and on one replay... I've seen that it's a goal. Now, I'm not a Sheffield United fan. I live in Sheffield. I'm from the other end of the city. What I'm about, really, is the the decision that was made was inaccurate. And then I think somebody's got to come out and say why it's inaccurate. And why didn't the fail-safe system of the human element come into play? You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're a jet pilot, you're sitting in a a million-dollar plus plane and it starts going wrong technology what's left to you is you pull a cord that's the human element that Mm. checks you out the plane now in refereeing when technology lets you down and this is a rare occurrence you've got to prepare for that downside by saying right we're going to defer back to the human element and rather than having our top referee Mm. michael oliver umbling and stumbling and saying the watch didn't work hopefully it had batteries that did work he should have been asking. He should have been asking the VAR. I want. I want to. Ha- I want your input. And then Michael Oliver should have gone to the pitch side monitor to view the incident. And we're not doing that. Referees are losing control of the match to a man sat in mm. Stockley Park who, who really is making the big calls, and he shouldn't be. It should be the referee on the pitch. Just, just, just you... sit on then. Uh, I just want to ask, like, do you think uh, then that the the problem isn't necessarily with a VAR, but like the implementation of it? Because it seems like nowadays um, they've kind of made uh, referees and assistant referees to rely heavily uh, upon it. Mm. Like, um, for example, on um, the the whole factor of like, oh, if the if the offside is tight, then the the assistant referee should keep their their hand down and stuff like yeah. that. Like, um, do you think that will play a factor, for example, in that Villa golf? Where, like, even though uh, uh, from the assistant referee point of view, he should he should be able to see that it it, it did go in, uh, but like it was still yeah. like a tight thing, so he preferred to stay out of it in that sense. That yeah, your insight's brilliant. Uh, I have to tell you that. I, I mean, the 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 reality is that when you have a, a technology system, it has to add to the performance, not defer from it. And I think that at the moment, Mm. there's an over-reliance on it. And we're taking away the traditional skill sets 
And I don't like this idea of holding your flag down. If if an assistant referee says to me he's offside or it's a goal, then I can defer back to the VAR and say, well, take a look and is he right? He, he may be totally wrong, the assistant, but he's made the call. But what we're doing now is we have we have had the top assistant referees in the in the world look at the appointments that they've had to the World Cup final. And what we're doing is we're asking them, actually, be there with the flag and don't use it in the big areas. And that, for me, is totally wrong. I mean, I think that I want to see the flag and I want to be able to be the referee that actually says, OK, we've checked with you, oh, mate, you've got it wrong. And admit to the error. And, and, and I think there's, there's almost a fear factor now that's coming in that says, actually, we're not, we can't make mistakes. We're human. We will make mistakes. And therefore, when we make a mistake, we've got to analyse why we've made it. And let me tell you, I already know most of the answers. And I don't want to sound arrogant, but referees, main, the main errors, and I've viewed thousands of tapes, the main errors that referees make is they're not in the right position and they don't see the incident. And as a result, I'm, I constantly said to referees, do not guess. If you don't see then there's going to be an error and then I can actively look at that to see how we avoid it. And the way we avoided it in the past was we made referees fitter, we brought in sprint coaches to make them faster and and then we had their movement and agility improved in order to get in the right position. But I, I'm not mm. seeing referees at the top level always using that benefit that they get from professional referee, you know. I'm the guy that operated in the professional leagues as an amateur and had the conflict between doing a, a day's work and then going and refereeing a football match, coming home past midnight and getting up at seven or eight in the morning to go and to my workplace. Now, mm. I had a reasonable degree of freedom being a sales and marketing director, but nonetheless, there were times when I had to turn games back because I couldn't do them because of my work commitment. So when I gave up refereeing, this is why I said we've got to go professional. This is when I became the boss. I brought in all the sports sciences, all the things that clubs were getting in order to improve officiating. And we moved to a position where we had, you know, the outcome was uh, Webb became the World Cup final referee in English, only the second English referee uh, to referee the World Cup. Now, my view is that I think that at the moment we're taking professional refereeing for granted and some of the referees shouldn't be there, putting it bluntly, because they're not performing as elite athletes or as elite officials. Mm. I think just, mm. just on that, Keith, you know, it's very interesting that you, you touched on that last little bit there. Referees are essentially elite athletes now, aren't they? Yes, you know they, they've, you know the, the way the game has grown. Obviously, all this as you touched on there about the sports science elements and all the other stuff that comes into the game now for the players. I think it's, it's just as important for the referees to kind of almost raise the barrier and standards for themselves to kind of uh, keep in line with that. But just, I just want to take you back a little bit. Something you touched on earlier about you know uh, you mentioned there about Uriah Rennie and I guess the number of ethnic referees there are. Why do you think there is such a um, I guess a, a small number, if if at all any. I don't even. I'm not even sure. Aside from well, the gentleman who's uh, yeah. the assistant manager, assistant manager, assistant referee at the moment in the Premier League. Common his name is it Akil Housen? Yeah, I, um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if there is any I, I, other ethics. No, I think I think that generally, 
um, I don't think that the Football Association, through its referees committee, have addressed that situation. I mean, putting it bluntly, the chairman of the referees committee at the FA is David Ellery. And 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 he he has made some in the past some racist remarks, and nothing has been done about it. So I, I'm I'm being blunt here. I I think that the oh. the people that were responsible for refereeing in this country are the football association through the regional county FAs, and I don't think sufficient care is being taken in first of all in recruiting uh, referees. And in terms of uh, black and ethnic minority referees, I don't think there's sufficient attention being paid. I don't think there's sufficient encouragement being placed to encourage these uh, these these uh, individuals to become referees. There, mm. there are loads playing. So yeah. if you can't tell you can't tell me that with the numbers that take play part in our game, that we cannot attract. Fairly good numbers, not one. I don't want the token referee. I don't want the token assistant mm. referee. You know, look at our population mix and say, right, it, it, is the percentages right? Is, what are we doing wrong? And and I and I think that I hear all the platitudes. I read all the the articles, and I say to myself, look, there were times when I sat with Yuri and had to encourage him, but there was an occasion when he ran me the line in a Porto. And I think the Portuguese players, and particularly the black Portuguese players, were absolutely amazed that standing on the middle of the pitch at the opening ceremony was a black English referee, Uriah Rennie. And at the end of that match, which went really well for us as a, as a team of officials, they ran across, the black players ran across to shake the hand of Uriah Rennie. I'll never, ever forget that. And then we came back to Heathrow, right, to get through customs and, and back into the country. Uriah was stopped. I walked through. Uriah was stopped and asked questions that he shouldn't have been asked. And, and okay, mm. I've not got a chip on my shoulder. I'm just a normal human being that wants fairness. And, and I want, I want mm. selection, right, on performance, and, and I, I see skill sets. You know, I've, I've just heard that from you, the, the in-depth analysis of why an refer, assistant referee held his flag down, why he didn't flag. You have, a, you have an awareness of the situation. So I was given massive opportunities. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, hey, this referee's pretty good. Move him up. Mm. So at that stage, I went through the tiers. So there is a pyramid system that referees have to go through to get to the top, which in fact filters out, um, I, I suppose, I, I don't use the word incompetence, it filters out whether you're capable of refereeing at a higher level. You know, if, if mm. that could be the, the old Isthmian League or the South uh, Southern League or, or, or the, the county, you know, the, the Northern League, the Southern League, all those sort of leagues that you, you gain mm. credibility on through performance. Uh, to get to the top. Mm. But I, I, I generally think that it is a situation that I feel strongly about and I feel that it needs to be addressed. And and I'm I'm hoping that, you know, I've had discussion with Uriah Rennie. 
And I'm, I'm hoping now that Yuri, being on the referees committee at the FA, will be listened to and that we, we, will, we will begin to see some changes in the future. Not promises, but actual... I'll only believe it when I see it. So I'm, I'm, I'm um, off my soapbox. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just... I know there's an unfairness. And, and I was given, you know, as an individual, as a, you know, a kid from the terraced houses that went to a, you know, I didn't go to a, a university. I didn't go to a public school. I, I was treated fairly. I worked hard. And I think that, you know, any referee who is going to take up the whistle, if they put in the effort, the rewards will come. And if I said to you, I've now travelled to 100 countries, either refereeing, or lecturing on refereeing, coaching referees. You know, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got a, a, a Zoom meeting on Sunday with a lot of the Indian elite referees. So they can ask me questions, I give answers. All I'm doing is passing on my experiences. But from a fitness point of view, if I can just drop back to that, the, mm. at the elite level, the reason I wanted to change from amateur referees in a professional environment to professional referees was we needed, to, we were losing contact with play. The, the distance between the action and those as referees trying to catch up and, and, the, and the wind blowing out of our backsides uh, at 70 <laughs> minutes, we knew that we had to get... We knew, the, the players will change. Yeah, we knew that there was massive changes in players' fitness. And so now, mm. I'm, my expectations are that, you know, a referee will run a minimum 11,500 metres per game. A thousand meters of that is at seven meters per second, and my expectation is that they, to be the very, very best, they've got to be doing between forty and fifty sprints in a game, uh, and that's about, mm. you know, the surprise of a player making a pass that catches you out, and then being able to re do a sprint recovery run to to maintain contact with play, um, and then working mm. with sports psychologists and players and managers to say, how can we improve the interaction between the referee and, and the players? How can we do that? And the only way we can do that is through communication and a smile, mm. a smile at the right time. <laughs> uh, I just want to harken back um, uh, to the sort of, uh, you know, the lack of uh, black referees and whatnot. And I just want to ask you, like, what... What sort of initiative do you think they can implement? Because, uh, like, in, in coaching, the FA have their certain uh, things they do, like the, the renewal aspects and, and birth fees and whatnot. But, like, I think, like, w what we understand is that football is just an extension of society, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, like, you, you, you need to change um, perspectives. So, like, what, ca what can they really do to help with that aspect? Well, first of all, I think there needs to be an audit in terms of mm. who the referees are. We've got 30,000 referees in this country. We should have a picture in terms of um, their, their, are they black, are they, are, are they ethnic minority, or, or, or all those aspects. We should, we should know. And, we sh and then mm. what we should do is, right, if we, we've clearly got a problem. Let, let's, not, let's not, like, I don't like hiding situations. I come straight out. And so as a result, my mm. view is this. I think that every county FA should suddenly get into the clubs and they should be saying, look, 
we we need to improve the mix of our referees out on the field of play. And the only way we're going to address that is by actually focusing on it. And the way you focus is is you you, you first of all break down the barriers and try to encourage this. Look, there's a fear factor. Do I <coughs> do I want to be um, the token black referee? Do I do I really want to be that, mm. or do I want a referee just for the love of it? Now, what we've got to do is break that initial barrier down, and the only way we're going to do that is. Mm. Get a couple of dozen in a room uh, and say, right, okay, here's the referee that's achieved it at the top level. Let's have a debate. How can we encourage you to become referees? Then they can ask questions and say, well, how do I become a referee? And then, hmm. then the old basis is, yes, you do something that's specialist to meet a, a problem. Now, some people might say, oh, you, you can't do that. You can't. But I think we have to. We have to find different ways of, of trying to break down barriers that say, look, you know, that kid who has suddenly grown into a man and, and has, has played his part as an active player in the game at grassroots level, somebody should be saying to him at some point, have you thought about being a referee? And the guy mm. looks at you and goes, oh, I don't want to be that. <laughs> getting all that stick and then you go just a minute as a player you love the game and, and yet you know given the fact there's 22 players and you only play 90 minutes you might you might only have the ball for about less than two minutes in a game you run around mm. the rest of it so now I'm going to give you a whistle and you can run around and make decisions and you're involved for 90 minutes plus and believe me what you think, what people don't understand is the amount of enjoyment that you get out of the game and the pain that you feel. Because I'm telling you, when you know that you've dropped a clanger, you've made a mistake, the, the pain... Because <laughs> the game still goes on. <laughs> the game goes on and you've then got to park it. And at the end of the game, look, all of us have been, all referees have been in this situation. We've come off, you know, and... I've apologised that I've made a mistake. And somebody says to me, you should never apologise for making a mistake. They can see I'm human. I sit, I put my hands yeah. on the uh, steering wheel. I head the steering wheel out of frustration. And then I say to myself, how can I avoid that in the future? You know, how, mm. how did I get into an argument with this player? Why did I upset him? You know, and then, and then begin to get balance into it. And, and that's part of the learning, you know. Why did I miss an offside? Because I had no, no assistant referees, no linesmen, but I can't guess. And so I'd say to the referee, they say, I think that was a tight off call. I go, yeah, it was a bit too tight for me. I'm not in the right position to judge, so I'm, I'm keeping the game going, you know. Or hmm. the ball's gone out of play and we're still continuing to play. And one of the players says to me, I think the ball went out. And I said, well... I ain't got any assistant referees. It's Sunday morning football. This I've no I've no linesman helping me, so I've got to I've got to go to some degree on the on the behaviour and reaction of players. And I'll tell you what people don't understand is we all want to win, but there is an underlying honesty in the game, you know, at grassroots level, mm. you know. And and hey, sometimes I go back to the pub, have a pint of of lager and lime or or a shandy. And somebody would come up and say, well, you're right on that one. And I'd go, tell me which one, because I can't remember. I made that many decisions. And then we'll get into a debate. 
And so I, I think there's the one thing about referees, I'll tell you, every referee I know can communicate and communicate adequately. And the guys who are currently on the Premier League are brilliant communicators, you know, and, I, and I've seen them close up because I've worked with them. I know, I know that Mike Dean has a dry sense of humour and I know Sorry. He, and, and I know he has a personality. You know, and and what you've got to do is not discourage that, you have to encourage it and say, Right, Mike, what, what I really want you to do is I want you to use that personality a bit more because an average of four yellow yellow cards a game, right? Do you think you're to blame a bit? And I go, well, actually, Howard Webb's only doing three yellow cards a game. And then and then you have a debate and you say, you know, the difference, Mike, is you're slightly reactive and Webb is proactive. Mm. You'll react with a yellow card. Webb would talk a little bit and Halsey would talk a bit. And Halsey would run alongside and probably then go to the skipper and say, look, I don't know what guys had. He might have had a heavy night last night, or he's not—he's not seeing eye to eye. He never gets on with me. Um, you better have a word with him to calm down, and I'll try and get out of his space. You know, mm. and that's—that's that's what you used to do with Paul Gascoigne. You know, you, you, let me give you an example. Gascoigne—if he was sub on the on the—you look at the team sheet and Gascoigne sub. You go, oh no, because you know <laughs> this guy, like a rubber band would wind up, wind up, wind up. He'd be kicking the bottle. He'd be standing up. He'd be getting frustrated, rightly so. He'd come on. And the first thing is he'd get a yellow card. And this is when I was boss of the referees. And I can remember, I mm. can remember uh, in one game, and I, I'll go by, Gascoigne's the sub, and then I see Yuri Rennie run to the touchline and start a conversation with Gascoigne as Gascoigne is coming onto the field of play. And Gascoigne smiles. There's an acknowledgement of each other and the game con continues and Gascoigne's a normal player. So I've asked the question, Yuri, what did you do? And I sa he said, well, I knew that if I didn't chat to him and calm him down, he'd come straight on and he'd, he'd be carded. So I've taken a bit of proactive <laughs> action and I've chatted to him. Mm. And he's probably said to Paul Gascoigne, don't know why you were sub today, mate. You're too good a player to be sub. Welcome on. Now behave a bit. Just calm down and get on with the game. That's all part of, if you like, refereeing. Mm. Proactive. Managing players. Knowing your player, players. And awareness. Yeah. So it, it's no different to the coach, is it? Standing on the touchline and determining that one of his players is, is losing either the fitness level or tactically... That is is not fitting into what's required for the opposition's change. That's when you make a substitute. Mm. You know, and, Just... and you can't do that in referee. <laughs> there are times. There were. Times, <laughs> I'm telling you, there's times when I was the boss of the PGMOL, sat in the director's box, thinking I'd like to sub this referee at the moment. The way he's performing. <laughs> <laughs> You should, you should have spoken on the radio for him to just pull a hamstring or something like that. I couldn't do that. <laughs> That's, I, I wish I, you know, we, we initially, when I introduced the communication, the, the best thing about communication kits was Chelsea. And I'm sat in the stand at Chelsea watching a referee. And all of a sudden, the referee's looking around in the middle of the game. Nothing's taking place, by the way. He's looking around. And 
and he's looking at the assistant referees and then suddenly realises he's got a game to referee. So, <laughs> at the end of the match, I come off and go, hey, you, you lost concentration for about 10 seconds. It seemed an age. What was going off? And he said, your communication kit is rubbish. And I go, what are you on about? He goes, I'm refereeing a football match and all of a sudden I get like this crackling sound and it's, I want a cab. I want a cab from Kensington High Street <laughs> to Oxford Street. <laughs> and we suddenly realised that Chelsea, we, ne- we needed to do something special with a communication kit to avoid that outside interference of taxi cabs. <laughs> that, that, was part of the le- that was part of the learning process. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, Keith, just want to kind of take you back. You know, you touched on there about Uriah Rennie having that moment with uh, with Gascoigne. But, you know, earlier on, you, you you touched on quite an interesting experience. And I, you know, I want to get a bit more insight from you and your perspective. But, you know, you mentioned that you guys came back from an airport or whatnot, and he, he was stopped. You wasn't. Just, you know, just to kind of talk, you know, there's, there's a big, obviously, discussion that's happening at the moment, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. Just want to, you know be interested to find a bit more about that situation itself in terms of, you know, how, how long ago was that? And what was your your perspective and your experience having witnessed something like that at that time? Um... I was very unhappy. Uh, and in fact, I, I asked Yuri uh, what the problem was. And I think at that time, I don't know whether he still has, but he had a, he had a joint passport. He had a, a West Indian and an English passport. And I think mm. it was because he had that, that, that the reason he was stopped. Uh, but do you, just so, but, just you know, that, look, do you think that yeah. was the actual reason he was stopped, or do you think that's what they used as a, uh, I guess, as a reason? I don't know, but let me tell you this: Yuri was appointed to that game as an English referee, wearing the three lions that we then had to earn, and he mm-hmm. carried himself throughout as he always does, in immaculate fashion. Um, I mean, this is this is a guy who's you know you should have him on your show. He's a great communicator. He's a great guy. Uh, I sat with him. You know, we we uh, Yuri and I sat one day in a in a, a graveyard having a conversation, which was just fantastic because he'd opened my eyes. We just celebrated the the laying of a, a gravestone of Arthur Wharton the first black player, and not only a black player, but also, you know, Olymp- Olympic Games sprinter and all that went with it. And 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 Yuri taught me a lot that, that day in that conversation. And and I was had that open conversation, as I still do with him. And I, and I think at the end of the day, uh, let's hope that he's for change. But the reason he was stopped, clearly, he was black. And, and, and I... I you know, I said I'd be blonde. I would be blonde. Was I happy? Absolutely not. Because he was part of my team who represented his country, England, as the three lions on his shirt, as anyone is so proud of doing when we get there. You know, because Yuri, like me, was in the, in the, in the, you know, the same parks in Sheffield, refereeing grassroots football just as I did, refereeing the teams that I re- uh, refereed. And I knew then, as a, as a, uh, you know, then a football league referee and Premier League referee, that Yuri would make the top level because the teams that he was refereeing were saying, "Have you seen this Uriah Rennie? He's a brilliant referee." So to have him with me, and he was selected for that game on performance, 
and he was selected to the Premier League on performance and performed terrifically on the Premier League. He was, he was at, you know, he was the fittest referee that, that came onto the list. He, him and Alzi used to compete for fitness levels and then Yuri sadly had a knee injury and, and never fully recovered. But he delivered top-class performances. And he's bright and intelligent, and all all the all the traits of being a referee. So, uh, was he treated unfairly on that day? Yes. Was I unhappy? Yes. So much so that I wrote a letter to the FA and saying so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, did I did I do enough? No. Looking back, I should have. I should have. It probably put my career at risk by going to the media and saying this is not the right way to treat people, and they didn't. The time, the time period. I was an international referee between eighty-one and ninety-one, so it's happened in that period. And I suggest it was mid-eighties. I'd mm. probably have to look at Yuri's record when he came on the football league to to get the exact date. Mm. But yeah, th- those are things that we've we've, we've you know we've got to fight the battle and, and it's got to change no I appreciate that because I feel like this is all part of it like these sort of conversations are, are needed to um, kind of open people's minds and like like you said like you, you wouldn't you wouldn't know you wouldn't um, have known of the struggles if, if not for that like um, insightful conversation that you had with uh, Yuri in, in the graveyard and stuff like that so like I I appreciate you um, talking about it and hopefully uh, someone that's listened to this that may have not been aware of like the particular struggles that uh, I know he's um, facing in that sort of like institutional aspects of it um, mm. may be open to it now. But and you know, this, just this want... is a, this yeah, is a guy, on. sorry, this is a guy who has broken barriers down in Sheffield for sure. Mm. And, uh, you know, he will break barriers down. There's no question. Good. He communicates brilliantly. Uh, he is uh, usually respected in Sheffield. I'll tell you. And and uh, look, I'm not around 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 the country, but he is respected in Sheffield highly. Uh, you know, and you know he's president of the the second oldest club in the world, Hallam Football Club. You know, uh, mm. and and that's that that's the sort of barriers that he's broken down. His his involvement in grassroots football in Sheffield is terrific. Uh, sadly, he's not involved with the PGMOL, um, because I think mm. that as a former PGMOL referee that gave great service to the game, he should have been retained as well in the coaching uh, role, uh, and uh, and and certainly in the education of referees. But it, but now he's in that position to influence on the FA referees committee the changes that need to take place. Hopefully, mm-hmm. it will. Just, just on that, Keith. You know, you talked there about you know the the coaching of referees and whatnot. How, how, you know, what does the typical recruitment process look like for a referee to kind of first of all even get to that stage, and then you know beyond that, what would you say are some of the key behaviours and characteristics you believe are required to, I guess, referee at at, at the top level? Um, you know, and obviously those would be some of the key characteristics which the coaches would then help to support referees on. Well, I think obviously. Um... As you start through your career, you've you've got the laws of the game and you have great knowledge. You know, there's 17 laws and you learn them. Um, and and then the, the the big learning curve comes when you start to 
apply the laws, but also suddenly you've got 22 players. Most of them are going to disagree with you. And, and you've got variable personalities in front of you. Some that are calm, some that you've got not got to bully. You know, if, if you're refereeing school kids, uh, you've got to treat them as school children with a brain and you've got to also encourage them and do a bit of coaching as you're refereeing. Why have you given the throw-in? Because the ball's gone out of play. Why have you given the goal kick? That's a foul. That's a foul for holding and all that goes with it. As you move up the ladder, um, you know, you, you face then the change from amateur games into semi-professional games where the demands become greater, where, if you like, the pressure on the referee starts to increase. You've then got crowds of 100, 200 that suddenly can distract uh, your, your, your concentration and awareness. Um, you're building up your communication skills, which are just not just verbal, but the verbal bit. You've, you know, the signals and the clarity and holding the signal for some time. Um, you're, you're trying to encourage referees not to call a player to them, but to actually say, you know, if you've got a triangle and the players are A, you're at B, come to C, join me. Join me here. I just want a quiet word. And, you know, there's too often mm. the, the, the referee says, the next time you do that, you're going to get carded. So, well, that's not the approach. What you need to say is, I need an improvement from you. And that leaves you the options as a referee, not to yell a card next time, but to go mm. to the next stage. So they've got to, they've got to understand, and all too often, they've got to understand there's a step process. The, the, the aspects of your body language, if your arms are flailing and all that goes as a referee, then you're actually promoting nervousness. You're actually, you know... There are, times, there are times as a referee, you haven't got a clue who last played a ball when it goes out of play. You ain't got yeah. a clue. But you're there and you're paid to make a decision. So what you've got to do is you've got to sell that decision with a firmness of a signal and then carry on. And, and that's, mm. that's the task that's in front of you. As you go up the ladder, then you start to analyse the performance of the referee. How well does he apply the laws? and get out those errors that he's made and why those errors are made. Uh, how well does he communicate with the players? Is it confrontational style? Um, how does he use his body language and his eyes? Uh, you know, is it, is it threatening? Is, it, is he, uh, mm. you know, is he aggressive? Uh, is he calm at the right times? Uh, does he push the card up the player's nose and belittle him? Or does he actually show it with some degree of space between himself and the player? Um, you know, if there's conflict, um, like, does he get involved? Uh, you know, I mean, let's take that uh, hand round the throat of a player the other night that happened in the oh. games, right? The referee should have recognised, OK, there was a coming together of a player and the goalkeeper got stretched off and that was unfortunate. But it was a footballing accident. Mm. It wasn't a yellow card. It was a footballing accident. And so the referee, very experienced, should be saying to the players, look, I've seen it. I'm, I'm happy. I'm not happy that the players got injured. But I have to tell you, it's a footballing accident. Get on with it. Now, he knows, the two, he mm. knows one of those players involved is Mopey, and if that's the pronunciation. So mm. he, he knows him. So he's, got to be, he's just got to keep his eyes on him. And so at the end of the game, there's potential for conflict. 
So what, mm. what Martin Atkinson's doing is he's looking at his watch and not dealing with the potential conflict. Now, he should have been aware that that might happen and then he blows his whistle to stop it. And that, that hand round the throat should not have taken place. But now it's too late. It has taken place. It has squeezed the opponent's throat. That is an act of violent conduct. That is a red card offence, right? And mm. tell me how the Football Association can... Yeah, it didn't, it didn't get punished, no. did he? Because what they, what they say yeah. is this. Uh, the referee didn't see it. I know he didn't see it because he was looking at his watch. He wasn't doing his job. The second bit is the VAR saw it but didn't act upon it. Well, then for me, the referee and the VAR would be having a week off <laughs> and, and getting some, you know, operational advice because that, look, that's how it has to be. Mm, you know, mm. uh, you've drove the, the bus into the bus stop shelter rather than stop before and get the passengers on. It's a, so then I go back and say, the FA will put up the barriers to say, well, the referee's not seen it, but VAR has, so we can't act. And the outcome is that here's a player who's put his hands around his throat of, of an opponent out of frustration, right? And he's got away with it. Now, what happened? Mm. Now, okay, we haven't got games on a Sunday morning because of COVID. But on Sunday morning, that happens to a referee in the local park. A player does it in the local park and he goes, You're off, son. And the player's saying, Well, hold on. This player on such and such a day didn't get sent off for it. And the FA said it was okay, so I'm doing it. Yeah. You're wrong to send me off. So the FA have a responsibility to send out the right signals. And, and they have a responsibility that when an error of that magnitude is made, that fairness comes into play. And fairness hasn't come into play on that one. And the FA will say, well, our hands are tied. We can't re-referee the game. Well, I think then that they should be playing their part with the authorities saying, we need to be involved in that type of incident. Mm. Mm. Just on that, you know, you, you touched there about essentially being able to make almost retrospective decisions on what's happened. We this is, you know, this is not your first criticism of VAR. You know, you, you, I think you're a bit initially, as you touched on, you know, you were very, very uh, for VAR coming in, but maybe you, I don't think you've been too happy with how it's been implemented ultimately. And I think there's been a few situations, hasn't there, where you feel like you know VAR has almost let the let the game down, and mm. in that respect, what, where do you think this is going to go with it now? Because obviously, you know, you've had a few situations now in the past, even more recently, yeah, recently yeah. talking about that. The Arsenal Brighton situation. Yeah. Well, I, th I think first of all, the IFAB—they're the governing body. They are the lawmakers, the International Football Association Board, of which, just to clarify, England FA, Scottish FA, Irish FA, Welsh FA, and FIFA are the members. So Germany's not on that board. Italy's not on. Spain's not on. So it's the IFAB. They sit and they frame the laws and how the laws are applied. They went through two years of testing with VAR to bring out clear protocols on its use. The MLS, which is run and managed by Howard Webb, operates the VAR system. And whilst occasionally they have the blow up, rarely do they have it at the same numbers that we have in, in the UK. The yeah. first area is offside lines, 
The offside lines are not used in the MLS. They're not used in the Champions League. And therefore, they're going back to an assistant referee having a second look on what could be a tight call and making a judgment call and saying it's off or it's on. What, we, what we're doing is we're using what I believe on offsides, flawed technology, and we're inventing a line on the pitch that is inaccurate. And the reason I say that is because I was involved in goal line technology very closely, I know that the cameras operate at 500 frames per second. There's seven cameras around each goal to judge whether a ball has crossed the line. When I look at the offside situation, we're operating with camera speeds of 60, uh, 50 frames per second, sorry. Broadcast speed, 50 frames per second. And we're looking not at one line, we're looking effectively at two lines. One, the, the point at which the ball is played. And, and two, if you like, the judgment that says, at what point is that player offside active? Because you can be in an offside position without mm. being, uh, committing an offence. And my view is that 60, 50 frames per second is not going to give you the level of accuracy that determines whether a toe is offside or not. So that's the first bit. The second bit is, in America and the rest of Europe, we're using the pitch side monitor because we're saying, actually, the game is being trusted to this referee be it Michael Oliver, Anthony Taylor, whoever, you are the referee. And what Anthony's got, or Michael Oliver's got, is he's got a VAR operator who's a colleague, another Premier League referee, right, who might be, I don't know, feels subservient to somebody like Oliver and, and uh, Taylor because they are our two UEFA elite referees. So they might say hmm. they might be thinking to themselves, "Well, I think I think they might I think I think Michael might be right. He's usually right, so he might be right. I'm not going to interfere." When in fact, hmm. Oliver's probably thinking, "Oh, I need some help on this one." Yeah. Uh, where is he? Now, the only way we're going to overcome that is to operate IFAB protocol, and for Oliver to say, "I'm in doubt here on this decision. I want to go and have a look at the monitor." And he gets a second look, and he, like me, the referee that's not running around the field anymore, but's got a seat watching television, can actually see that that ball's gone over the line. And he can be asking at the same time, what's happened to Orkai here? I didn't get mm. a buzz. Mm. The decision then, he might have still said it's no goal, and then we criticise him for making the wrong decision, but we might have had goal. Now, this is where I think the judgment on these situations, when it's subjective, should be left back to the referee and not with the VAR to make that judgment. Mm. The referee can feel the players and, and he can feel the decisions and he, he should be with. So until we get that right, VAR in England will not be very good. Until we get it'll it'll improve once we start to operate the system on IFAB protocols but then here comes the next stage because look I'm not looking for a job but I think ex-referees should be VAR operators so I think you know we look around uh, Plattenberg is out of work at the moment 
China's not using him this year. Uh, Paul, I don't know where Graham's gone, Graham Barber. Uh, there are sufficient referees who are available to act in the VAR room without any association between the referee and, uh, and you know, and the VAR. Mm. Just, yeah. just, just on that, you know, speaking of VAR and obviously, you know, errors and like, taking accountability for those things. Would you say there's any major errors that you've made in your career and, you know, the wish on the second thought that you had VAR to help you? Uh, well, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think VAR gives that second view of a decision uh, that hopefully uh, recovers the referee from a wrong decision. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, as a referee, every referee makes mistakes. We're human. Mm. Uh, and what we try to do is keep the major errors to a minimum uh, and, and, and deal with them. But if we have got you know, the backup of VAR on the major areas, which is goal, offside, penalty kicks, wrong dismissal of a player, then that should operate and operate successfully. Definitely. What would you say is one of the major errors that you've made in your journey, your, your journey as a referee then? Uh, I think in the Euros, uh, Euro 88... Uh, finals, the first opening game between Germany and Italy, and there was a challenge uh, behind my bike that I didn't see that was worthy of a either a red or a yellow. Maybe I'd have, if I'd have seen it, I'd have given red. Uh, but the assistant referee didn't come in, a linesman then, uh, and I can tell you at half-time there was hell of an argument in the dressing room because the other linesman, uh, was having a real go and saying, why didn't you flag to Keith? Why didn't? And he goes, well, he wouldn't have seen me because he was running away from me. And he said, well, I'd have flagged if you'd have flagged. So there was, there was that confrontation. And when I reviewed it afterwards, uh, I would have red-carded the player without a shadow. So that was, for me, a major area. I didn't see it, but I would have expected a member of the team, and we are a team, uh, to mm. have resolved that, uh, that, that error. Um, I think a lot of debate goes around uh, when it's West Ham, Tony Gale and the dismissal of Tony Gale in an FA Cup semi-final, which absolutely ruined the game. Um, and, um, and, and that was for denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, which everybody now knows what's a denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. But what happened was that on the Thursday before the semi-final, all the referees were brought to a meeting in Coventry and we were informed that our interpretation of, of dogs, as we call it in refereeing circles, was incorrect. Mm. And that any foul that was committed where the player was in possession of the ball and heading for goal, that was now a red card. And I asked the question, I've got a semi-final on Sunday. If this happens, have I got a red card? And he goes, yes. And then had the hope that it wouldn't happen in the game. Tony Gale committed a foul. I see it as dogs, so I send him off. Um, I, I'd tell you that a week before, uh, I wouldn't have even spoken to Tony Gale. I'd have just given a free kick and got on with the game. And uh, all hell that bro broke out with the, with the West Ham fans, and they never forgive me to this day, uh, on the basis that they had no awareness of the instructions that we'd been given as referees 
about the change mm -hmm. to the interpretation of law. And as a consequence of that, I said that if I ever got into a position of authority, uh, no law changes would take place mid-season or interpretations would take place mid-season. And that all the new law changes would be communicated to the managers. And I upheld that because, you know, I had meetings with all the managers pre-season at Premier League and Football League Championship levels uh, and yeah. said, Look, these are the law changes. These are how they will, uh, will be applied. Uh, and then I had referees going into clubs with the players explaining those law changes to them, um, mm. which I think is important. Definitely. Just, just on that then, what would you say your biggest bugbear is when it comes to refereeing? Because obviously you know, there's a few frustrations that you've kind of really touched on throughout this conversation already. Well, I, I think that, um, look, there are, there are many positives, but the negatives are that I think that as professional referees now, paid a salary, all they have to do is referee. I know they fit, but what frustrates me is they don't use that fitness to good effect. I have to say that I've seen Anthony Taylor lift his fitness levels and application of his fitness in recent days on the pitch. That's really good. I've seen Oliver do the same. I'd like to see some other referees um, apply themselves more to looking like athletes and being athletes on the field rather than slumbering around and losing contact with the game. And that's when I'm really, really critical uh, because... That's the benefit that the game receives when it, it spends the amount of money it does. Look, I left the game. The budget I spent was $5 million and I couldn't spend that. I thought it was a huge amount of money. If I told you that the current budget of the PGMOL is $20 million, then it raises the questions as to the amount of investment that's going in refereeing. Is it being directed in the right areas? And are we actually getting the, the positive outcomes from it? And, I, and mm. I have doubts. I don't want to be sounding as though I'm the old guy that's bitter. I left because I wanted to leave the, the Premier League and the PGMOL because I wanted to get into more education of referees at grassroots level. And, mm. and that's what I've been doing and that's what I continue to do. Fantastic. Just, just on that then, Keith, you know, if, you, if you could go back you know, going back to the 70s, I think you touched on there. When you first got into referee, what would be one of the key messages that you give yourself going into that? Knowing what you know now. I think always, I, I, I dwelt a lot, a fair amount of time on uh, fitness. Um, I think as you, as you mature as a referee, you, you gain experience in terms of the quips that you can have with players. You know, uh, let, me give, let me give you an example. In my first game at Anfield, Anfield, in the middle, I'm refereeing Liverpool Wolves. And in like three or four minutes, there's a foul. I've given the foul. And the captain, Emily News, who's captain of England at the time, comes up and says to me, what are you doing, ref? And I'm going, it's a free kick, mate. That's what? I say it's a free kick. Never in a month of Sundays is that a free kick. And so I said, look, quieten down and just get on with the game. And, uh, and he, he suddenly says to me, do you know who I am? And I've gone, well, I'll tell you what, if you, can, if you continue this conversation publicly, belittling me as the new kid on the block and trying to take advantage of me, I'm going to caution you. I'm going to yell a card you. And he goes, 
but I'm the England captain, mate. Don't you know who I am? And I go, listen, I'm going to find out now because here's the yellow card coming. What's your name? <laughs> he looks at me and goes, are you for real? And I go, yeah, what's your name? And he goes, you know who I am? I go, right, okay. H E. I'm spelling it out, by the way. It's sounding it out. H E M L I N G. And he's looking at me completely bemused. And I go, just like the drink I'm going to have after the match. I'm the England captain. I go, Emlyn, I know you're the England captain. Just give us a bit of space, will you? I'm new to the job. You know I'm new to the job. I'm learning. I've got enough pressure without you. He was superb Mm. for the rest of the game. And believe it or not, Emlyn and I became really good friends. And uh, because he managed Rotherham for a time and then he played in local junior football. You can't believe this. He played for a pub team in Sheffield, and I'd come across him on a Sunday morning and go, oh, no, guys, we've got, we've <laughs> got a crap referee today. Oh, Jesus. Why don't you give up Sunday morning, Keith, and let us enjoy the game? Because not every game's a cup final. I go, Emlyn, every game is a cup final. And you know I'll put as much effort in this morning as I would yesterday. And he goes, where yeah. were you yesterday? And I go, well, actually, I was down at Arsenal. And and he and it, it's <laughs> those were the the sort of learning curves. And sadly, a few days before he died, uh, I get a phone call, uh, and it's would I join him at Bramall Lane? I go, well, I don't go to Sheffield United. It's the other end of the city, and I'm not particularly fans with that club. And he goes, listen, <laughs> I met I, and I met him and sat with him, and he sat there for the full ninety minutes having a real go at the referee. Having a real go at the referee on everything, mm. anything, and and I said I don't think this game. He said this game, Keith, would be better without the bloody referee, and and I and and so we had this exchange of of uh, commentary. But I always remember that, and and I always remember that first meeting, and how eventually I couldn't believe that I was a mate, if you like, uh, or a friend certainly of of the former England captain Emily Hughes. But that. That's football, you know. You, you you work with players and you admire them. You know, I mean, I was really looking forward to, to this month because I refereed the 1981 Cup final between Spurs and Manchester City. Mm. And we all, I think, all remember that great Ricky Villa goal. And this year, I was invited to join the, the, the players in a reunion dinner. And I was really looking forward to that. Sadly, COVID put an end to it. I'm mm. told it's going to be resurrected. And that will be, for me, more like, cracky, I'm part of the club, if you know what I mean. It's just like, yeah. wow, the, the players are actually inviting me to their event. That's uh, now, they might have a go at me on the night, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's due, due care and, and, and what they're allowed to do anyway. Definitely. Get yourself prepared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So just um just on that then you know you know as we start to wind down you know, you've talked a bit about your journey some of the things that you've done over the, over the over your career um yeah you're now in retirement from refereeing you know you, you're writing for the the Daily Telegraph and doing your doing your pieces for them what's next for Keith uh, Keith Hackett sorry well I, I write also for China um, uh, in in their magazine Football Weekly and I write regular columns and I review games for 
PPTV out in China. I review. I'm going to start reviewing games in Ukraine football. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, uh, and review games, you sort of in terms of the referees' performances. Yeah, I or... think I think that uh, I think generally in refereeing, there's a lack of communication in terms of an outcome, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, you know, and and at the same time, what I'm also trying to do, I'm trying to get that, if you like, look, this is the referee's bit. This is the, this is why he's done it, or the reasons behind decisions, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, I mean, uh, we've seen some good refereeing. I mean, I think Graham Scott has done really well this this week. Uh, I think he's, he's he's growing in stature as a referee. There are some really positive bits to get out there, and I don't think there's a balance in that. Uh, but uh, but I think you know I I operate with a company in Dinnington in Sheffield keys to referee uh, and in fact they've got keys to rugby and various other sports but this is an e-learning platform business that does learning for school kids and I approached them a, a year ago and said look can we not do this e-learning um, for referee around the world and of mm. course with zoom and various other things other areas skype and the like we're now seeing that as a as a, a feasible thing that we we can all do so uh you know as i say on sunday i'm talking to indian referees uh i'm hoping to open up some doors in in relation to helping them going forward uh there are referees around the world i've helped new zealand and australia i, I even helped the formation of pro referee uh, you know, when they came along and said, look, tell us how it's run and organised. I gave them chapter and verse with the full permission of the Premier League at that time. And, and now they're operating successfully as a group of professional referees. So there are lots of things to do. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, I think the public have a right to understand more the laws of the game. And I, and I want all stakeholders in the game, fans, I mean, I've just think, I've just started work with UREF in Australia, but they their fan based organisation they put on these clips onto their system. Fans make the judgment, uh, and then what mm. happens is I come in as the invigilator. I come in and say, actually, this, this, you're wrong. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I agree. So fifty seven percent of you're right. The remainder are wrong, and this is why you're right. You know mm. the same. Mm. In, I've just answered a UREF thing today, this morning where a Manchester City player was dismissed <clears throat> for a handball. Um, everybody agreed. I think 79% agreed that that was correct in dismissal. I've looked at the clip and what the referee and VAR have failed to see is a foul committed by the Chelsea forward running forward and taking out the player right before he gets mm. up and handles the ball. So the referee should have, should have blown for the free kick rather than the outcome of a player being red-carded. Mm. Not easy for the referee on the day. Easy for VAR to see. But what VAR's done is he's concentrated. He's gone on the handball. Yeah. And he's not looked in the lead-up to that. And therefore, he's, the outcome is the wrong decision. And, and so... so you know, there are other areas where the referee, you know, Lee Mason gave a penalty kick, correct decision. Um, a lot of people think that the Mope, when he challenged the goalkeeper, should have been yellow carded for a reckless challenge. It wasn't a reckless challenge. The outcome to the to the goalkeeper was horrendous. 
nobody would want that. But it, it was a footballing challenge. It's allowed in the spirit mm. of the game. And so, okay, if he wanted to, he could have seen it at the very worst as a careless challenge and just given a free kick. Mm. So th there are those aspects that, uh, look, I, I like. And if I've got some doubts, I can ring my mate in Spain, Mark Elsey, and say, look, what do you think? And he'll often disagree because that's refereeing. <laughs> and then we, we, we might put the phone down agreeing to disagree on certain incidents. Mm. And just then, a, just a final note then, you know, um, if you had, I guess, one kind of golden nugget, I guess, more for, you know, if there is any referees listening to this potentially, but even for coaches just to consider when, um, you know, just really taking, taking the referee into consideration, what would that be? Well, I, th I think that from a coaching perspective, concentrate on your role and don't let the referee upset you because you'll be upset. Whoever coach you are, you'll not be happy with the referee's decisions by the very nature that you're passionate about your own team and you don't necessarily see things in the round and you always feel hard done to. However, I think at the end of the game, there is no reason why you shouldn't knock on the referee's door and, and uh, first of all, thank the referee, however well he's done or not, but then say, is it possible that I can ask you a question because I'm seeking clarification? Yeah. And the referee, if he's, not, if he's doing his job properly, will actually communicate to you um, why he's made a decision. And often, sometimes, the referee's not seen it. Or what yeah. you see as a big in incident um, he's not. He's not seen. You know. And sometimes one of one of the things I noticed, referees are less doing less shouting and arm waving in playing an advantage, and I think sometimes mm. that confuses the spectator and gives them a belief he's missed it, when in fact he's actually seen the offence, but he's applying an advantage. Definitely. And so there are those areas where I think debate and discussion, but. Um, I think ultimately, at the end of the day, I think there's got to be a greater understanding and communication between all, all stakeholders in the game uh, about the referee's role and about the coach's role. You know, mm. one of the things that really advanced refereeing for me was two discussions that I had. One with Sam Allardyce, who made it very clear that if I wanted to improve refereeing, I had to bring in sports science. I had to look at a product called Prozone to analyse performance in detail and I needed to look at sports psychology and I did all that and then mm. uh, a discussion I had with Arsene Wenger uh, at Radlett when he said well Mr Hackett I start off by saying I don't really want to get involved with refereeing, I don't want to I don't really want to talk to you in detail about refereeing because my concentration is on the club and then we had a terrific debate Mm. You know, and if you remember when he was, you know, he suddenly got frustrated with the referee's decision and the referee was daft enough to send him off in the 90 plus minute and he, and he, for kicking a bottle away, which he shouldn't have done. And then he's standing on the, the, the sort of, uh, awning, yeah. if you like, of uh, Manchester United. Yeah, Old Trafford, yeah. Mm. I mean, I was on holiday and I was in Falcom and I picked the phone. First of all, I want to apologize. And he goes, why? Well, the referee should have applied his common sense. And, and perhaps you should by not kicking the bottle. But let me tell mm. you, the outcome was 
he knew the distance. He knew that he was only less than a minute to be played. He could have dealt with that. He could have dealt with it out of the public eye. And he could have see, chosen not to see rather than see. And the outcome of a, a top-class manager uh, that's, that's given a lot to the game, standing on top and being the centre of it and focus of attention was not what we wanted and not what right. I want as the right. referee's boss. And I said, look, I'm, I'm re- I apologise. I will deal with it. And the outcome was I dealt with it. And I think then he respected me and I respected him, not for giving way, but for having an understanding of his frustrations with his team at, whilst they were playing at Old Trafford. Mm. Just a final note then, Keith. A uh, quick fire round. Yeah. Biggest player you've refereed? I suppose that has to be Maradona. But if I can have a second one, the, the, my favourite player to referee was Kenny Dalglish. Okay. And the reason being, 100%. Mm. He, every game I refereed him, he was 100% player. Mm. Okay. Question two. Biggest game you've refereed in? I think any referee will tell you the world, the, the, uh, the, the, the Wembley final an FA Cup final, you only get it once. I was lucky enough to get it twice because of the replay. That, for me, was the biggest game and the game I enjoyed most. Yeah, I had the Olympic Games semi-final, I had the opening championship, all the other games pale into insignificance because the FA Cup was the game I dreamed of achieving and lucky enough to achieve it. And the final one, most challenging player that you've had to referee? (laughs) Oh, there's a few of those. I can name you. Uh, I can name you Justin Fashionu, Vinnie Jones, Laurie Sanchez. I think the old Wimbledon side, oh. managed by uh, <laughs> Dave Bassett, were a handful. Uh, but uh, let me tell you, I always enjoyed refereeing them because of the challenges that he gave you uh, and the fun you had with them. Because the banter was terrific, you know, mm. and uh, and so. You know, there, there were other players that, that came in, in, in into that. Uh, perhaps the, the dirtiest player that I ever refereed was a guy called Escadarian, who uh, who played in the North American Soccer League. I was warned about him before the game, and the game was only two minutes old when he got a yellow card mm. because of his challenge, <laughs> which, which when I look back afterwards, um, I got in the dressing room at half-time, and the guy said, one of the... Uh, refer- a linesman said to me, Keith, under what law did you yell a card that player? Well, uh, reckless challenge. And he went, well, it was more than reckless, wasn't it? And I went, well, listen, if it had been a bit further in the game, he would have got rod- red, but it was a bit too early. He got a yellow. <laughs> but those, those are things you do as referees. Definitely. Well, there you have it, guys. Look, it's been another fantastic discussion again today. Uh, some brilliant insights, especially from the perspective of a referee. Um, I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. As usual, I've been joined by my co-host, Ben, and a very special thanks to our guest today, Keith Hackett. Keith, thank you again for being on the show today. Pleasure. Thanks um, very much. You're welcome. And on, the, on that you. note, if we could just let the listeners know where they can get in touch with uh, us in particular, and obviously, Keith, if you've got any social media handles that the listeners may want to get in touch with you as well, start yeah. with that. Uh, if they go on to www.keystoreferee.com, then they'll get an insight into refereeing as we develop the website, as we develop our social media. And mm-hmm. they can listen in to other referees like Alzi and Roger Dilks talking refereeing and refereeing issues. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and go- Fantastic. 
fantastic. Anyway, guys, I'm Coach Yes. Well, there you have it, guys. It's another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. Please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.